welcome everyone to tonight's event, uh, the Women Outside and Camp Arirang Anti-Asian Misogyny and War. Um, I'm Minju Bay. I'm a historian and a member of Nodutor for Korean Community Development, and I'll be moderating tonight's program. Um, just for the sake of time, we're going to dive right in. Uh, so this event is presented by Third World Newsreel with Nodutor for Korean Development, Community Development, the Korean Policy Institute, and the Documentary Forum of the City College of New York. It's also co-sponsored by ARI, the Asian American and Asian Research Institute of the City University of New York. Um, it's also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and the New York State Council on the Arts and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs and the Peace Development Fund, as well as individual donors. Uh, so Third World Newsreel is a progressive media center that prioritizes media by and about people of color, marginalized communities, and social justice issues. They do this through production, educational distribution, training, and events like this. Nodutor uh, for Korean Community Development is an organization of New York-based diasporic Koreans and comrades. Nodutor uh, mobilizes membership to advance peace, decolonization, and self-determination in Korea and Turtle Island or North America through political education, collective action, and principled solidarity. Uh, for descriptions of the other presenting organizations and groups that I've mentioned, please see the chat um, along with their websites. First, please join me in Nodutor's land acknowledgement that in New York or Lenape Hoking, we are on the unceded lands of the Lenape, Canarsie, Shinnecock, and Munsee peoples. As we gather today to discuss systemic violence and genocidal logics of imperial warfare, we acknowledge the genocide and erasure of indigenous communities and nations, and we commit to dismantling settler colonialism in our collective vision for life-affirming futures. So even though we're gathering virtually today, I encourage you to contextualize the lands where you reside and to deepen our ongoing learning about the legacies and current processes of settler colonialism and empire. Now a few logistical notes for tonight's event. Uh, we're keeping the audience muted. Um, we are in a member, or sorry, a meeting format on Zoom today. Uh, and if you have any questions, please type them in the chat um, and then we'll get to them later uh, in the Q&A portion of tonight's event. So we hope you've had the chance to watch The Women Outside uh, by JT Takagi and Hejong Park, and Camp Arirang by Grace Lee and Diana Lee. Both of these films have been streaming since Monday. You should have gotten links in your registration. Um, and they will also continue to stream until tomorrow evening, so you still have a little bit of time. Tonight's film and film screenings, or sorry, tonight's event and film screenings are meaningfully situated. This week marks the 68th anniversary of the Korean War Armistice, a war that has yet to end um, and has justified the presence of US military troops in South Korea all these decades and the camp towns around them. In addition, the wave of heightened anti-Asian rhetoric and violence in the US, uh, as well as the massacre of Asian women in, in Atlanta, um, the confluence of these issues has brought us today um, to tonight's program. Uh, 
So we want to underline the critical importance and connections of anti-Asian violence here and abroad and how misogyny has global and systemic contexts. So we'll now show uh, two short trailers. One is from um, these two films and the other is from a film filmmaker, Koan Lee, uh, from her film called Host Nation, which examines aspects of the US military presence on women working in Camptown areas in 2016. Good woman is survive for their family, and good woman is a good heart, treat people nicely, and some obey the parents, <laughs> what parents want, want to do, and not mess around any guys, <laughs> try to keep their virginity until they get married. This is my uh, former thinking. Before I met, before I met GI, that was my good woman idea. After I got out of medical school, I got a piece of paper that said, "Hey, you're going to Yonsan, Korea." And from Yonsong, I came to Corner, and then from Corner to Camp Stanley. So it's not like I chose Korea or anything. I've had a lot of fun here as an experience. This is the best place for a, a single soldier. They can come down here, and there's girls and food and uh, beer, clubs, everything a teenager could ask for. <laughs> The Korean War ended in 1953, but thousands of American soldiers still patrol the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. While neither U.S. nor Korean policymakers officially condone prostitution, they consider camp towns essential to a soldier's R&R. Therefore, every major U.S. base has a camp town outside its gates. I'd call out the GIs. Let's go home, let's go home. Many women ended up in Camptown prostitution by having read fraudulent newspaper ads that promised good jobs, that promised room and board. When they actually responded to the newspaper ads, they found that they were forced into prostitution. From the Korean government's perspective, these prostitutes serve a very important role in keeping the U.S. GIs happy while in Korea. These women, in a sense, serve as what I would call personal ambassadors. Um, very often, these women are the only Koreans that U.S. GIs have contact with on a daily level. They, they said Korea is filled with prostitutes. Most of these women are prostitutes in this country because they, they never knew any that weren't.
And now I'd like to introduce Emily Yoon, who will read some poetry relating to tonight's event. Uh, Emily Jungmin Yoon is the author of A Cruelty Special to Our Species, which was published in 2018. And she's also won many awards for her work as a poet. Um, please see the chat for more on Emily. Thank you, Dr. Bay. Um, the first poem I'm going to read is called An Ordinary Misfortune, and it comes from my book. The second poem is called The Blades, and it's, an early, uh, it's a newer poem that I wrote earlier in the pandemic. An Ordinary Misfortune. What is pressing? What is pressed? Or who? My grandmother, a woman, a teen. Her father presses the gate shut presses her into a crate, the crate into a shed. She unfolds by morning, binds her chest. She walks on woman. An American soldier sees her and yells, stop over there in Japanese, the language they've both learned. When she runs, she's unmistakably woman. She falls, he laughs. What is a body in a stolen country or whose? What is right in war? What is left in war? War hasn't left Korea. I have. I fold. I give up myself to you. Which one of you said, let's have raunchy Korean sex to me? Which one of you didn't? Do you represent America to me? Did those soldiers to her? We didn't fear war. We feared the allies, she said. The blades. You cut down on the gopher in a single crisp stroke in the garden, in it also your mother's prized orange tree, a blue jay your family feeds and has trained. I picture the gopher no longer struggling in the trap inside the water pipe for the sprinkler, throbbing over grass and stones. Then you must have slid open the door to the dining room, leaned the shovel on the tree. I heard the story years ago in California. In the time of pandemic, alone together, I read too much news. Trump defends using Chinese virus label, woman assaulted in Manhattan, blamed for COVID-19, racism is a virus. I obsess knowing our place as Asians in this country the exemplar minority with advanced degrees and gadgets of superior meekness, knowing our desirability was built to reassert Western centrality, that too, a type of technology. To keep us in check, a Texas man took it to himself and stabbed an Asian father and two sons, cutting their faces open. One of the children has a gash pointing to his eye, the damage itself in the shape of a blade, a delta, wanting to breach another opening. Watch, watch the wild turkeys roam the neighborhood, unconcerned, banal, and ugly. Yet you love these animals. When our friend's old cat died, you had cried. He was 18, had a good, adored life. You had mourned so for someone else's animal. 
So when your mother told me at the dining table about the gopher, I was shocked. But that too, with kindness, your shovel, for the slowly dying animal injured beyond saving, for entering the human world in the shape of a pipe, a wet reach to a diorama of the natural world. Embarrassed and ashamed, you looked away. As we sat in that moment, two Koreans in a white world, I wanted to marry you, to protect the person who loves like no other, whose kindness is unlike anyone's I've known. Foolish and naive, yes, every day someone leans the shovel and knife, real and not against a gentler thing after striking another that looks like us, for crawling too close out of the technology they built. Yet today, feeling momentarily safe in our room, I can ask what you did to the gopher. You buried the animal, you say, in the same earth it came from. Thank you. Thank you so much, Emily. Um, and now I'd like, I'd like to introduce you to our panelists. Um, for the sake of time, I will uh, give a one-line bio and um, their longer bios will be posted in the chat. We have JT Takagi along with Hejong Park. Uh, well, Hejong Park isn't, isn't here, but uh, JT is the filmmaker of the 1995 film, The Women Outside, Korean Women and the U.S. Military, which is part of our screening. Uh, JT is also my co-conspirator for tonight's event. We have Joyce Kim, who is a counselor at Turebang, which in English means my sister's place. It's a women's organization that supports women who live and work in the camp town areas surrounding U.S. military bases in South Korea. Um, and we have Saloni Bauman, who is a historian, writer, and co-leader of the Asian American Feminist Collective. Again, please see the chat um, for more uh, on their bios uh, of our wonderful speakers tonight. So I'll start tonight's panel with questions for each of our panelists. So, so the first questions are for JT. Um, I think JT will appear on my screen once she starts speaking. But JT, can you tell us about the making of your film um, and what your aims were? Uh, and this is referring to the women outside. Um, hi. <clears throat> first, thanks everyone for joining us tonight. Um, I hope you can see me, but, uh, <laughs> and uh, I wanted to apologize to Hejung Park, my co-filmmaker was not able to join us tonight, but she's busy with some family issues, but she sends her her best. Um, so um, what led up to this film was in part that I had worked previously on a film about separated families with Christine Choi, which led us to both South Korea and North Korea. For me, it was the first time being to both countries, and um, I was frankly shocked um, at the experience in South Korea because I had no idea. When people say military base, you don't think, oh, we're going to see them everywhere, and that there's soldiers everywhere, and that there's camp towns everywhere, which was the case. And 
Um, for someone who hasn't seen that before, uh, especially if you're, I think if you're an Asian woman, you are, it's a kind of shocking experience to realize, oh, this is how the world sees us. Um, and it's all bases and soldiers and women who are working with these soldiers. Um, and since I have managed to live my whole life and not realize that was the situation in the various countries with the U.S. and military bases, um, and Hejong had grown up in this situation and had been telling me we should do something, we should do something, that we uh, embarked on that. And um, a lot of that was with the help of groups like Didibang that Joyce works with now, um, that they were able, they existed then and they were able to help us to make contact with women. Hejong spent a lot of time um, hanging out basically in the different base areas and camp towns in order to meet women who might be have an interest in speaking to us and was able to in fact get people's cooperation. Um, and uh, we knew that it would be an epiphany for people who hadn't seen that situation there um, to, to realize what the situation was between the U.S. military and women there in particular and how that might make some sense for how people saw women here. Um, and then the other part of the film, we follow someone who, several women who come back, come back, they come to the United States as wives of servicemen. And so we ended up having to go to bases in the U.S. where very similar camp towns exist with similar names, except where the ones in Korea would say Texas or USA, the ones here would say Seoul or something like that. Um, but that same dynamic existed. Um, and uh, so we felt that we should make that connection between bases overseas, bases here, and uh, the sort of intersection of uh, militarism, racism, patriarchy, and how that might inform how people in see us and what our relations are with uh, the general uh, American public. In addition, though, we also wanted to clarify for people that well, the women we portrayed, we feel very much were the heroes of their story. I mean, that they worked to survive and that much of the community here, not only among Koreans, but on all the different groupings, um, are grew because of women coming over to this country as the wives or companions of U.S. soldiers and on the basis of that, communities were able to grow. And even though communities don't necessarily want to recognize that, um, as Professor Link Kim says in her film, that is the was a strong basis for how these communities were, were able to develop in this country. Thanks, JT. I know so many of us who are tuning in are filmmakers or aspiring filmmakers or film goers, if, if that's something that we can do now in the pandemic. Um, and so I guess the, the next question that I have for you is, is about the process. Like, what were some of the challenges that you encountered when you were making this film um, and kind of the, your experience with documentary as a medium? Um, well, as you might imagine, because of, particularly because of the conditions of the campdowns and the relationship that the South Korean government, the U.S. military have created uh, even though they pretend not to have created it, um, means that there's a lot of rules and there's a lot of regulations and there's a lot of control in those areas. And so um, we were concerned about our ability to film. Um, 
We deliberately had people on our crew. We had one guy who looked like he could pass for military. And uh, so, and then when we went to film, we had a woman cinematographer because we figured, oh, we would probably not seem threatening when we moved around the camp town, which was the case. But we were still blocked because when people heard, oh, that there were people filming in town, um, several interviews were blocked uh, and we weren't able to actually get them and things like that. So, um, and then of course the issue of being able to talk to military officers uh, about the situation, about what, what, if any, policy the U.S. had um, also took some uh, maneuvering around uh, to be able to get those. So, and then finally, I mean, we were very lucky in following our main character who was just open about and saying she felt like this is my story, this is the reality. And um, so she allowed us to follow, and we followed her for years, actually, because it took her a while to actually make it to the U.S. and get settled and all that. So, um, so there's all, all kinds of issues. But thanks to Jude Bang and to the women's support groups here that were helped us on both, both coasts, so both countries. Um, the next question I'm going to ask you is about kind of your role, and then also I know you think about this question a lot. Um, so for the rest of us, um, what is the role of something like documentary film, um, and kind of the the process of relation building that you that you sort of spoke to in inspiring um, social and systemic change? Well, there's what we believe, and there's what other people do, but. Um... <laughs> I mean, Thermal Newsreel and filmmakers like Hedgehog Park and myself and others um, believe that um, media has power and has power to help people rethink and change their minds and help inspire them to make change. And that's the uh, concept behind Thermal Newsreel's existence, and especially in bringing people's voices that have not been heard in the past. Um, and that is uh, our emphasis on, is on people of color and social justice issues, and that's what um, I will say that is not uh, a glorious and um, lucrative field, but it's uh, uh, you see the measurement in terms of minds you can change and things like that. The one thing I will say though, if you saw those two those trailers, is you know it's the conditions. It's another population of women, but. The conditions of, of their being camp towns and with the relationship with women to the soldiers and the fact that the soldiers are still there uh, is something that uh, we're hoping people are paying, being mindful of. Thanks, JT, and thank you for that wonderful segue. Um, as we turn to Joyce, um, to remind folks, Joyce works on the front lines as a counselor in at Turebang. Uh, so working in the camp towns of Gyeonggi province. And so Joyce, I was wondering um, if you might be able to tell folks about Turebang and then the organi organizing that the organization and that you do. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Um, thanks um, for inviting us um, to this really great um, event. And um, yeah, so I am... Um, a staff member at Turebang. Um, and as Minju um, already explained, Turebang is a women's organization 
um, that provides support to uh, women working in the military camp towns in South Korea. Um, and we're located in the camp town of Camp Stanley, which uh, in the trailer, the first soldier said, you know, he ended up coming to Camp Stanley. So we're in that exact um, camp town. And so we've been around since like the 80s, uh, 1986. Um, and um, we actually, um, our main center is here in Camp Stanley. Um, and then we run a counseling center um, simultaneously here in, um, in the center. And then we also have a shelter um, exclusively for um, migrant uh, women survivors of trafficking. Um, and so um, through the counseling center work and the shelter work, we um, do a lot of um, you know, service providing medical and legal services, uh, shelter uh, support, um, et cetera. Um, but the main center here in Camp Stanley in Ujungbu, um, we um, provide care to um, the group of elderly uh, women who um, have been living and working here in the camp towns since the 60s and 70s and the 80s. Um, so we, um, I think that um, the sort of the main um, sort of function that we have here in Camp Stanley is that we um, are kind of a community center for um, for the women, um, and um, it's a place where you know we can run programs and classes. Um, that might be necessary for camp town women and also the migrant women um, who are working here. Um, there aren't any clubs here anymore because the, there aren't any more soldiers here um, on, at Camp Stanley. Um, but we um, have run programs and um, have mostly functioned as a space where um, women can just come in and kind of like have some coffee or have some food and just kind of rest and chat. Um, which, uh, you know, it, the, this village is actually very small um, and there's not a whole lot of facilities um, here. So for there to be this kind of um, community space, I think it's, um, it's, it's a significant um, space. Um, and then most recently um, over the past, like maybe six, seven, eight years, um, Tudebang, along with other organizations um, that provide support to Camptown women, um, we've been um, providing support in the uh, Camptown women's um, actions against the Korean government, um, and also, um, you know, uh, trying to establish some sort of um, support system for uh, an official support system. Um, for the camp town women who are now uh, sort of aging and dealing with a lot of uh, sort of a myriad of medical problems and housing issues and um, trying to figure out, you know, what is the best way to secure, um, you know, their rights and also, um, you know, ensure that they have some sort of way to, you know, uh, live out the rest of their lives in a comfortable way. Um, yeah, so that about, I guess, roughly speaking, that that's the work that we do. Um, I guess with the broader view, I've, my next question is kind of about um, camp towns in Korea more generally, and then 
um, sort of kind of speaking back to the trailers that we saw, I understand that there has been a lot of demographic changes in the history of camp towns in Korea. So I was wondering if you could tell us about this um, and kind of the driving forces that have, that have led to these changes. Yeah, um, so I don't, I don't know if everyone's um, familiar geographically, um, um, but if we have um, South Korea, there's the capital of Seoul. Um, and uh, like, if you can imagine like a fried egg, um, the egg yolk is Seoul and then the white part is Gyeonggi province. Um, so, uh, you know, there are military bases, there have been military bases across uh, the country, but um, there are um, many concentrated um, within that, that white part of the fried egg, um, Gyeonggi province. Um, so um, if we uh, go to, I'm located in North Gyeonggi province, um, and um, it is uh, one of the sort of older, oldest camp towns, I would say, um, since after the Korean War. Um, and uh, here, um, like I said, there are no more soldiers, um, so there are no more clubs, and the camp town is, I mean, there are just people just living here in the village, um, but there are no more um, services uh, for soldiers and facilities for the soldiers. And so um, if we take uh, the context of North Gyeonggi province, um, there are the elderly and aging um, Korean women who are working in the camp towns. And then if we go a little bit north to a city called Dongducheon, um, there is still um, a, a camp town um, in that surrounds Camp Casey in Dongducheon. And so, uh, like we saw in the trailers, um, there used to be Korean women working in the clubs and in the sex industry. Um, and now um, it's completely, um, you know, changed to uh, women from um, other Asian countries, um, for example, the Philippines. And then also, um, you know, back in the 90s, there were women coming from Russia. Um, and so there has been this uh, change in demographic. And I think a couple of um, things have been happening um, to result in these demographic changes. Um, one thing is that um, in the 80s, um, the, the sex industry in general in Korea just kind of boomed. Um, so uh, in terms of um, during the Tonduan dictatorship, there was sort of this drive to uh, create sort of a, a bigger booming sex industry in general in Korea. So we had this um, growing sex industry outside. And then in the camp towns, um, business was actually decreasing because of the numbers of soldiers and you know um, those kinds of changes. Um, and then um, you know at the same time, um, the Korean women in the camp towns were kind of aging out of the camp towns. Um, so they were getting older. Um, you know, uh, perhaps uh, taking on a more uh, managerial, um, uh, uh, how do you say, managerial um, uh, role in the camp towns. And then it just didn't make sense for Korean women to continue to work in the camp town sex industry. They, they could, you know, find work other, in other um, parts of the country where there was a bigger sex industry. Um, 
And then um, there was also the Olympics in 1988. And so post Olympics, there was a lot more migration um, from uh, you know, countries uh, uh, in Asia, like the Philippines and other countries. Um, so, so there was this, again, declining sex industry in the military camp towns. Um, and then there was kind of migration, uh, you know, increasing in general into Korea. Um, and then uh, there were also uh, special tourists, uh, special tourist districts that were set up uh, in the 90s. Um, and so that uh, really enabled um, the camp town uh, establishment owners to, um, you know, sort of bring uh, migrant women into the country on um, entertainer visas, arts and entertainer visas. And so, um, again, a lot of different things were happening. Um, and uh, so that was in the 90s, the mid 90s, that migrant women started to uh, come into the camp towns to work. Um, and a lot of them were coming in under the pretext of, you know, um, being entertainment, um, like singers or dancers, and then um, they would be sent to the camp town clubs. Um, so that was, I guess that's like a 25 year history, a little bit more than 25 years. Um, and today, like we saw in the trailer for Host Nation, um, you know, migrant women are still working in the clubs today. Can you um, speak to some of the, the work conditions in the camp town, um, particularly in relationship to kind of like the broader politics of militarization in Korea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, it, it was actually, uh, I watched the women outside like 15 years ago. Um, and then I watched it again this past week and I was um, like really surprised um, because uh the in the interviews um there there's you know uh information on you know what what uh work women are doing in the clubs and it was just really um kind of surprising because um first of all i had forgotten about you know the content of of the documentary because it was 15 years ago um but then the second thing is is that you know um up until the pandemic um you know the working conditions were very similar um very, very similar. And so, um, you know, like I said, uh, migrant women are coming in on um, arts and entertainer visas, but, uh, you know, they're, they're working in the clubs, um, you know, asking soldiers for, for drinks, uh, and then, you know, possibly having to provide sexual services. So it's, it's, it was the same thing. Um, and so it was really just kind of saddening because, you know, 25 years, 35 years later, it's the same situation. So um, I would say that um, the control methods um, of the women working in the clubs um, are probably different um, now compared to, you know, 40 years ago, 35 years ago. Um, and so, um, you know, while we um, still, you know, um, hear about um, sexually exploitative uh, tactics and uh, labor exploitation and surveillance and, um, you know, all of these, um, you know, uh, difficult conditions. Um, I would say that um, just, you know, club owners and uh, maybe customers are just getting smarter so that they don't leave 
uh, you know, a footprint or, you know, uh, so that they don't get in trouble or, um, but in the end it's, um, you know, uh, the people working in the clubs are still being controlled and, um, you know, still uh, under a certain uh, degree of surveillance. And, um, you know, in the end it's, uh, it's to it's for the the club owners and the camp town owners to um, continue to make money um, and um, I would say that uh, you know in the past 40 years ago um, you know club owners and uh, brothel owners they made a lot of money um, and now with the whole migration uh, uh, part um, you know it's it's not as lucrative, I think, for club owners and uh, promoters to, um, you know, bring uh, workers in to Korea. And so, uh, you know, they need to make sure that women don't run away or uh, they need to make sure that women are sort of, quote unquote, working properly in order to continue to make money um, off of uh, U.S. soldiers. And so um, I would say the conditions are similar. Um, obviously, uh, like in Korea today, if, you know, uh, a club owner resorts to, uh, physical violence, um, you know, there's a higher chance that, um, the club owner will get in trouble, uh, through law enforcement. So those tactics are not used as often as they were before. Um, and also, um, women working in clubs, I think, um, they, uh, experience sort of less physical uh, violence from at the hands of uh, uh, customers. But in the end, um, the, the systems and the uh, exploitation um, uh, tactics are the same, if that makes sense. And then you spoke about how like the pandemic has sort of changed things. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering what those changes might be, what, how, yeah, how has all of this affected um, the sex industry? Yeah, um, so uh, the because of COVID, um, because of the pandemic, soldiers have um, you know been on lockdown um, on base, uh, and clubs and bars have been um, placed off limits, uh, which means that um, soldiers cannot uh, enter uh, these establishments. Um, and so because uh, soldiers have been on lockdown, um, the sort of the clubs have just kind of been, uh, I don't know, kind of uh, waiting for, you know, these lockdowns to um, be over. Um, some clubs have just uh, altogether closed, uh, uh, you know, until things will, you know, things get better. Um, and so the majority of the clubs closed and uh, it was actually really a, an interesting uh, experience because last year when the pandemic started in uh, in Korea, it started in late February or in February. Um, and then in March, things started to close. Um, so I, I went in, I think early April or mid April and everything was just like, dark and I had never seen the camp towns dark at nighttime because when it's nighttime the lights turn on and you know everything's really flashy like like we saw in um, the documentaries and so 
um, yeah, things closed down. Um, and, uh, you know, what that resulted in for the migrant workers was that, um, you know, a, um, you know, some migrant uh, workers, they just didn't have work. So they just had to kind of um, just wait in the, the house until, you know, their, the club owner said, okay, we're opening up. Um, and so I, some of our, our clients um, literally just kind of spent like six months in the club, club's housing, um, not really going out, um, just waiting for work. And then there were um, some clients who, you know, really couldn't um, deal with not, they, there was no way for them not to make money because their family members were um, having a really difficult time uh, back at home. So they were looking for uh, work in factories and farms and, and things like that. Um, and um, that kind of um, became a problem because, um, you know, working on a farm for the first time in your life, uh, there, you know, <laughs> there were some clients who were getting sick and, you know, like throwing up and, you know, because they were dehydrated and things like that. Um, and then um, the last part was, the last thing is that, um, you know, some clubs did operate um, during the uh, operation bans in Korea. Um, and what that, um, this is actually uh, like a really interesting thing because, um, you know, if the clubs were um, operating during the operating bans, they weren't um, servicing soldiers because soldiers were uh, on lockdown. And so, so what was happening was that they were secretly bringing in Korean um, customers into the, into the clubs. Um, and if there was some sort of problem, um, you know, and, uh, you know, for example, maybe someone um, got attacked, there was really no way to, um, you know, make any reports because everyone was, uh, you know, working under the operation bans, for example. And so it was really interesting because when soldiers aren't able to drink um, or, you know, go into the clubs, into the vills, um, just like everything stops. Um, so that's, I think, really um, telling in terms of, you know, um, how, um, how much influence, you know, the U.S. military base has on, you know, an entire, uh, you know, district or um, an entire part of a city in terms of the economic um, uh, effects. Um, yeah, so that's, that's the situation now. It's still continuing. And, um, uh, you know, we were thinking maybe the clubs were going to open up again in July, um, but um, things got a little bit, um, the social distancing measures got uh, a little bit tighter uh, in July. So uh, clients are kind of still in limbo right now. Yeah. Thanks so much, Joyce. It's, I think, really kind of interesting context for us to think about the kind of the broader scope and the political economy um, of, of camp towns, especially as it relates to the films that um, mm -hmm. so many of us have, have tried to watch. Um, I'm going to segue to to Saloni for us to think about some of the the broader implications and the connections that we can make transnationally 
um, around this question of kind of this or this long history of anti-Asian violence. And so Saloni, I mean, I, I know um, you wrote a great piece um, kind of contextualizing um, the Atlanta murders uh, in Truth Out. Um, so for folks who'd like to check that out, that's in Truth Out. Um, and Saloni wrote that with a colleague, um, Rachel Quo. And I was wondering, um, as it relates to your work with Asian American Feminist Collective, which I, I will from here referred to as AAFC. Um, if you could tell me about how AAFC sort of understands anti-Asian violence and kind of what happened in the aftermath or in the wake uh, of these murders. Thank you both for having me. And it's been so wonderful to hear this conversation. I watched both of the films and um, Mijun and I texted a little bit about them, but they were incredibly kind of thought provoking. And I think the kind of continuity is something that um, was really resonant for me and really resonant in many of our conversations within AFC about sort of um, the Atlanta murders really prompted us to think through kind of anti-Asian violence as a category that it, to us was a much slower category than the kind of moment of spectacular violence we saw. Um, we were sort of thinking about how much um, intergenerational, slow, traumatic violence there really has been, um, particularly violence against women or gender-based violence, if we can call it that, around sort of the construction of who Asian American women are in the imagination of America and also the world in sort of these coercive immigration policies that um, basically incentivize, I mean, global immigration policies, right? Incentivize leaving countries of origin, coming to the United States, and then essentially lacking all access to welfare benefits or mobility or ability to leave the spouse who sponsored you. And all of those stories kind of come out um, in the documentaries as well. And Rachel and I, you know, think a lot about how um, and in AAFC kind of broadly, we think a lot about kind of early Asian American feminist writing. It's a really generative space for us. So I'm thinking of, you know, anthologies like uh, Dragon Ladies Breathe Fire or Making Waves. And there are these kind of, you know, anthologies that have poetry and fiction and journalism. And you really get a sense that when Asian American feminists in this kind of third world liberatory movement are talking about the problems of their lives, they are those kind of overlapping problems of personal and political, and they're about spousal abuse, and they're about feeling trapped, and they're also about um, how things like war actually have kind of intimate effects, right? They're not just broad policy conversations, they shape and contour um, the most intimate aspects of our lives. Um, and I remember, you know, reading, we had read years ago about Urca legislation and the ways that, um, in particular, the kind of figure of the war bride or the sponsored visa bride kind of came up repeatedly as someone that the state really feared was committing welfare fraud while not acknowledging the work that these women were doing and essentially um, absorbing the PTSD of endless war from soldiers and caring for them and uh, you know, doing the domestic labor of running their homes and kind of the really uh, vital social function they were expected to play and the racialized way that kind of uh, circumscribed their um, circumstances, I guess. And we, I mean, we could talk about this a little bit, but we, we thought a lot about kind of 
if we think about anti-Asian violence in that broader framework, how would we actually address it, right? How do you actually address what led to this horrifying moment of spectacular violence rather than um, through things like a hate crime task force, for example, or the responses that we did get? Um, and if those solutions would actually help the women that uh, were affected or were in that massage parlor. Thanks, Swanee. Um, not everyone is based in New York, so I'm wondering, um, and, and th I'll, I'll ask this question so that um, we can all think about this together. Um, I guess I'm wondering what kinds of conversations AAFC had to have in the wake of the murders, and then sort of what what's what this conversation around safety or the or the task force. You could maybe elaborate on what the task force might be um, to sort of sort of situate us. Totally. Well, one, I do think there was kind of a nationwide, at least in the U.S turn towards kind of um, how do we legislate our way out of this problem or how do we address this problem um, that has kind of emerged in this way. And I think with all kinds of conversations about safety and violence where people really have fear going out, you know, that's a real experience too. We had to navigate a lot of really personal experiences of what made different people feel safe and what didn't. Um, and AFC has organized for a long time in New York City with a group called Red Canary Song that's based in Flushing. Um, they work with massage parlor workers and they kind of came together at a moment to address the death of a massage worker named Yang Song who actually jumped to her death um, fleeing immigration enforcement and the NYPD and have always been kind of an abolitionist organization that has been very clear that policing is actually part of the problem for those women, right? They fear the police, police raids make their life much harder. Um, whether or not they're engaging in sex work, they um, are accused and read as sex workers and fined and ticketed and harassed. Often it is um, the police who are kind of coercing them into sex. There's all sorts of um, valences of that. And having been part of those conversations, we had to really square our minds with the fact that the event that prompted it, and you kind of mentioned there was, you know, there's been a rise in anti-Asian violence on the street, street-based violence. Um, but the people who were most affected by that violence occupied a very different class position, even within Asian America. And while increased police presence might make some people feel safer, it more than likely would not make other people feel safe. And so many of the dynamics that come out in these documentaries too of how our own communities regard certain members of us as kind of an imagined community as separate or not worthy of protection or outside of who we wanna claim, um, kind of filtered into all those conversations about who gets to feel safe. Now that we have this kind of conversation happening, um, what does safety and inclusion actually mean? Um, I was so struck, I mean, in one of the documentaries in Camp Ararang, in the, there's a kind of moment where U.S. policy is integrating the military, and the women are given a directive that they are, you know, not allowed to refuse customers uh, based on race, in part because 
some of the way we measure social inclusion is what kind of sexual access men have to particular bodies of women. And so I think some of our conversation on policing that emerged out of that moment was also who has access to state-sponsored safety and who is actually um, outside of that. And some of the bid for Asian American inclusion really hinged on really wanting to be kept safe by the police and wanting to be included in that. Um, so I think those are kind of ongoing conversations that we're still having and that I think that we really have to walk people through of like, what does make you feel safe? And um, we kept getting a question sort of of like, how would you feel if this happened to your grandmother? And how would you feel if, you know, that this was someone you knew who was harmed? Wouldn't you want the police? And we often kind of came back to the fact that probably not would we want the police to interrogate our grandmothers or have that kind of response. We didn't know if that would actually make those people feel safer or provide um, any sort of care to them after a traumatic event. So those are just a lot of scattered thoughts. But Thanks so much, Saloni. Um, so we're really using this event today to sort of make some connections that I think have haven't quite congealed in kind of the public discourse. And so we're really thinking about this question of what is the transnational scope of anti-Asian violence and misogyny. So I'm, and I'm gonna ask this following question, recognizing that we all live in different places, like we all, as in the, the, the panelists, all live in different places. For example, Joyce is based in Korea right now. And so we're all kind of surrounded by very different conversations about, um, our position um, as Asian or as American or as Asians in relationship to a broader kind of U.S. empire. Um, and so the question that I have, and it might be something that we that you might have touched on a little bit um, earlier, but if you could just sort of kind of ruminate in it, is uh, like what is, what does anti-Asian violence mean to you? As like as a as a phrase that's become a phrase, um, and then also what is your or your organization's take on what the public discourse around this violence has been? And so I'm I'm kind of so this is for all of you. So I'm kind of open to to the ordering, but please jump in, um, Joyce Lanier, JT. Well, I think uh, there's a couple of things. One is that. Um, hard to separate the transnational and the national, I think, in people's minds and in people's, in the government policy. And I think that all filters in. Um, so that's part of it. And I, I don't think that most people are aware of, of this transnational relation and how that impacts people's mindset and why it was so easy to develop a stereotype of, oh, what kind of women are these versus that and things like that. Um, and then, and just jumping back to what uh, Salani was saying is that uh, even though it becomes really easy to say, oh, we need protection, um, is what does that do? Does that really change things? Does that make things different for people in their lives? And does it change what, what they're thinking? Um, and uh, so I would just challenge that to people who are jumping to, we need more, more police presence especially when we know what the other side of police presence is, right? That more black and brown people get killed. Um, and that the core of whatever issues there are um, is not addressed at all. It's just more, basically more military, right? So, 
I was wondering, Joyce, what people in Korea thought or if, if they had any awareness of, of the situation. Um, yeah, so as far as I'm aware, um, so when when the the shootings happened in Atlanta, um, you know, I actually I didn't I didn't know um, uh, I, I saw the headlines in the morning and then I came to work that day and then I heard from um, one of the the residents of the village what had happened um, and so uh, you know it was really shocking but um, what was more shock shocking was that um, like people weren't talking about it in Korea um, or you know if uh, if there was you know some mention it was oh you know it was they were Koreans who were killed, right? Um, who were murdered. And, um, and you know, even uh, within like the Turebang, um, you know, network, I don't think that um, people had a really good understanding or an idea of how much, um, you know, the, the murders were connected to gender-based violence and um, this like sort of history of war and, uh, you know, um, imperialism. And so uh, in the end, there, I, I don't think there really was a discussion. Um, and so, you know, even with coworkers, it was sort of hard for them to understand, um, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm from uh, the US, I was, I was born in the US. And so um, I think I have a very good idea of uh, what it means to be an Asian and a woman. But um, people in Korea didn't seem to um, be able to relate to that. Um, and then I realized that, uh, you know, perhaps in Korea, um, the people who uh, understand that kind of anti-Asian violence, um, you know, to the root of it are Camp Town women, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, and I, Again, so there there wasn't a discussion, um, too much of a discussion here. Uh, we I had hoped to talk about uh, this with our uh, Korean sisters, our unnies, but because of the pandemic, we we weren't able to. But uh, in the end, like uh, I think you know the the it's a very different um, understanding because you know the history of uh, you know um, racism in the United States. Um, and, you know, the history of imperialism. It, it's a very different experience, I think, in, in Korea. Um, so unfortunately, we didn't have those conversations. Thanks so much, Joyce. Sloane, do you, do you wanna answer this question too? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I was a little bit talking about it before, but I, I can just kind of add that, I think it prompted us to think and this is similar but different to everyone about what Asian America is. And we're a group that calls ourselves the Asian American Feminist Collective. We are obviously very invested in the idea that there is an Asian America that is a useful organizing principle for us to think about our experiences across. Um, but the responses and the things that made different people feel safe or that people wanted out of that moment felt really disparate even in that kind of category of Asian America. And I'm South Asian American, for example. Um, and AFC, we had written a letter um, actually before the Atlanta shootings, but 
um, after kind of a rise in anti-Asian or you know violence against Asian people in New York City, saying that we did not want an NYPD hate crime task force. We'd asked other organizations that were local to sign on to that and to sort of think about why increasing funding for the police um, was not the right solution to what we kind of understood this problem to be. Um, and as a group, I think that we felt like we weren't always in sync with what other people wanted and we were almost having a hard time articulating where our solidarities lay. And for me, it was so clear that, um, you know, after 9-11, it was not just kind of an other people's issues with police brutality, but the NYPD actively surveilled South Asian and Muslim American communities, registered them, deported them, split up families. It was, it's a real history of trauma after um, that community also lived through 9-11. It also happened to them in a way that we don't think about when we kind of think about global events, or I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think often is not thought about. Um, but it was different. And I think we were all kind of grappling with what it means to walk down the street and not feel safe. Um, and if there was some sort of unifying principle that had emerged in that moment. And I think that something that JT kind of mentioned, I think a lot of Asian American women felt like an experience they had been having that had not been um, spoken about as real or had been dismissed as in their heads had a tangible physical form suddenly had kind of you know, resulted in this thing. And I think it, of the conversations that everyone wanted to have after, you know, I was having phone calls with people who were crying mid phone call, people just felt very seen or that some experience they'd had of being overly sexualized or a comment made or, you know, a relationship that they'd had kind of was refocused as a product of um, global history and racial capitalism and kind of this bigger thing. And I think it felt very um, traumatic for people to be reminded that it wasn't individual, but it was actually a structural issue that they had experienced. Um, and that was kind of the first time in my 30 odd years of life that I had kind of felt that so universally. Thanks so much, Salani. Um, I'm going to open it to the the chat um, for more Q&A. But I guess one thing, as, as folks um, would like to submit questions, and I see that some questions were already submitted, so I'll get to those in a moment. Um, but I'd like for the panelists to also sort of think about a question that I have, which is about, I've asked a lot of questions today, so I'm just indulging myself, but this question of what what is to be done? Um, and I think, um, Sloane, you talked about this a little bit, um, but I guess like kind of this, I, I, I think there's this kind of overwhelming sense of, of what, what now kind of thing. So I, I guess I, I asked that question. And then in addition to that, so this is, this is me trying to do multiple things at once in keeping, keeping time in my mind. Um, in addition to that, um, maybe in connection, JT, if you could answer this question from someone in the chat. Uh, which is, um, and maybe any of you could actually ask, ask, answer this, is how much has the world's view of South Korea um, changed since the release of this documentary? Sorry, that's a lot of questions at once, but I'll let you, I'll let you uh, delegate amongst yourselves. Um, well, the easiest one will be <laughs> the last one, and then I'll go back from there. 
Um, I think the worldview of Korea, even at the time we were filming, was changing and has changed, of course, a lot more since then in terms of uh, how developed it's supposed to be that um, it's considered one of the, you know, rising capitalist countries. Um, and at the time that these bases and camp towns first started coming into existence, the income brought in by the women working in those camp towns was deemed critical by the South Korean government to the national economy. And that is not the case now. Um, so uh, the, the actual relationship of South Korea in terms of its economy to the U.S. has changed. But given all that, the military and, and basically the control relationship between the U.S. and South Korea has not changed. Because if, if things have changed so much, why are there still so many bases? Why are there soldiers? And even though they have reduced some of the bases, they've enlarged others. They brought more military devices, like that missile kind of things, uh, into the country. And, uh, and in turn, um, evicting farmers and things from their lands. And so there's all kinds of local protests over uh, the use that. And so much of that, while it's... Uh, defended as being something against North Korea uh, is in fact clearly from the way things are set up in terms of the bases, both the naval bases and the on-land bases, that really has to do with China and that Korea is a very convenient place for the U.S. to uh, interact or protect, supposedly uh, prevent China from doing other things and North Korea is just the excuse. but the Korean people then end up paying this price, right, of militarization, continued camp count presence, continued military exercises, which are still going on, uh, even through the pandemic, um, of, of practice fights against a supposed North Korean attack involving thousands and thousands of soldiers, planes, and boats, and things like that. Um, so that's the anachronism, right, that things have changed, but not have changed. Um, and the U.S. is still maintaining, attempting to maintain its hegemony in that region. And not just Korea. We're talking about Okinawa, Guam, the Philippines, and things like that. So um, then I'll come back to the other one after other people talk. But I notice there's also a question here for Joyce about whether the migrant women are treated differently by the customers' clubs and uh, the authorities. Um, let me take that question first. Um, I think that um, migrant women are absolutely treated differently um, because uh, they're seen as, uh, you know, um, first of all, they they have to deal with status, right? So, um, you know, like uh, like in most parts of the world, um, people who are undocumented are targeted, um, no matter what you know experience they've had in in the place where they're living and working. And so, migrant women um, in Korea are definitely targeted by uh, law enforcement and um, immigration. And so, uh, you know, raids are a really big problem. Um, raids are problems in the sex industry in general, um, but uh, when we have migrant women or, or 
migrant people working um, in, you know, um, in general, um, you know, language, uh, you know, lack of information regarding laws and things like that, that is, um, you know, a huge obstacle, um, you know, just going in. So um, in terms of, um, you know, um, treated differently by um, by soldiers, I'm not sure if, if there's a difference, um, you know, uh, compared to 40 years ago and, and, and now, but in terms of, um, the Korean uh, law enforcement system, I would definitely say that um, that migrant women are, are treated differently and um, and harmed um, in a different way um, than Korean women are. Um, and then I guess um, to try to tackle uh, Minji's question, um, it's, yeah, it's, um, so it, I'm not based in the, in the United States, and so um, you know, if I try to answer the question um, from a person, you know, uh, working with Camp Town women, um, there are two things I think that need to happen. Um, the first thing is that um, so the Camp Towns were created, um, you know, by the Korean governments, but um, for USFK, right? Uh, USFK would be US Forces Korea personnel. And so um, uh, at Turebang and then also the other um, organizations providing support to camp town workers, um, we see the camp towns as a, a space of um, state violence. Um, and so uh, um, the camp town women, a, a large group of camp town women actually sued the, the South Korean government. Um, you know, for um, promoting, uh, you know, the uh, sex industry and also, um, it, you know, unlawfully administering uh, penicillin and things like that. And so um, the women are still fighting um, against the South Korean government. The lawsuit is at the Supreme Court. Um, it's been at the Supreme Court since 2018. And so um, it's already been three years. Um, but the, the good thing about, you know, this lawsuit is that during the, um, during the appeals, uh, process, um, the women, actually the plaintiffs, they, uh, actually won the lawsuit. And so, um, we are hoping for a positive result at the Supreme Court, um, which, you know, it could come out either way, right, uh, win or lose. But um, this is really significant, I think, because the, it, it is having the government, um, you know, uh, um, acknowledge um, its, its wrongdoing. Um, and uh, it's also, um, I think, uh, you know, a good segue into having the South Korean government, um, you know, take some sort of responsibility for, um, you know, for what happened in the camp towns. And so I think that we need to tackle this from the South Korean end and also the United States. And, um, you know, when will the U.S. government or, you know, the U.S. military uh, admit that, you know, it, um, you know, uh, put, uh, you know, Asian women in, um, you know, sometimes a lot of harm um, in, you know, requiring uh, uh, host countries to 
uh, provide these sort of, sort of like R and R uh, towns, right? Um, so uh, on the Korean side, we're hoping that you know after uh, the the Supreme Court ruling in the South Korean uh, courts, we can maybe try to find a way to have the U.S. government, um, you know. Uh, admit some sort of, you know, uh, responsibility in, um, in the camp town sex industries and the violence that has occurred um, historically. Um, and the other thing is that um, even still um, today, the, uh, you know, our Korean uh, clients are very elderly, they're 60, 70, 80s, um, but they still face uh, serious stigma. Um, and so, uh, you know, even within um, Korean society, you know, they're, uh, some of the, the Korean clients, they're not able to actually like leave the camp towns because um, they fear that they'll be um, seen or outed um, by, you know, someone they've uh, met in the past. And so, um, yeah, the, the stigma against, um, you know, people in the sex trade um, that's something that, you know, Korea really needs to um, sort of um, tackle and really, um, um, you know, uh, kindly um, figure out a way to, um, you know, understand that um, this, uh, this is, um, you know, really uh, gender-based violence or uh, discrimination against um, women in general. And so, um, and that I think, uh, you know, is probably something that needs to happen um, in other parts of the world as well, in the United States as well. Yes, it's Joyce. There's a clarifying question in the chat um, about, um, Joyce, do you mind clarifying the significance of the launch date of the 2014 lawsuit? Um, yeah, so the, um, that was the, yeah, June 25th, uh, 2014 was the date that the uh, lawsuit, lawsuit was launched. Um, and as probably most of you know, um, it, uh, June 25th is the date that marks the uh, beginning of the, of the Korean War. So um, the date was, um, yeah, specifically, we waited until um, June 25th to um, submit the lawsuit papers. Thanks so much. Um, I'm noticing the time, so I just want to note that unfortunately we won't get to everyone's questions, um, but thank you so much for submitting your questions, and um, I'll make sure to, to collect them and send them over to our panelists um, and, and see what, what we can do with them. Um, but thank you so much to our panelists, um, to my co-conspirator, um, and thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today um, to think about anti-Asian violence and misogyny. Um, I want to emphasize again, uh, there's also a symbolic value to having this event on this week for us as well. Um, it is the 68th year since the signing of the armistice, which ended the fighting of the Korean War, but it did not end the Korean War. Um, and I want to know the danger of re renewed fighting remains um, and in the context of this ongoing war, the U.S. justifies the hyper-militarization of South Korean communities still. And the military tensions between North Korea and the U.S. remain very high. 
And this, of course, is not to mention the genocidal impacts of sanctions and continued family separation entrenched by the travel ban, ban to North Korea. And so the Korean War is ongoing and we're part of an effort to bring it to an end. Um, this, I guess, is in response to one of the questions in the chat as well. But for um, with all of the speakers today, I want to call your attention to a number of ways to get involved um, and to think about next steps in our collective imagining of a life-affirming world without misogyny, warfare, and imperialism. And so please check out Turebang and Asian American Feminist Collective for more about their campaigns and organizing. Um, we have some links in the chat um, referring to uh, the presenting organizations. Um, and yes, please join me um, in thanking all of our panelists um, and thank you so much again for joining us tonight. Um, please take very good care during this really hard time. Um, and hopefully we don't have to do this again next year. <laughs>